0: Hello and welcome to another Leaders Performance podcast from the Leaders Performance Institute. My name is James Emmett. I am the editorial director here at Leaders. And coming up today, we have got some behind the scenes content from the latest Leaders Sport Performance Summit in London in early November. Uh, two days of fantastic on stage sessions uh, featuring case studies. Insight, all the good words uh, from elite performance practitioners around the world. All the content, all the videos and the write-ups of the sessions are available uh, now on the Leaders Performance Institute website, www.leadersinsport.com dot com. Everything is available uh, for Leaders Performance Institute members. So why not treat yourself and become a member today? An absolute treasure trove of content there. Of course, membership does get you access to uh, many of the events that we run across the year too. So coming up, We have some behind the scenes interviews uh, with four of the speakers from the Leader Sport Performance Summit this year. Uh, First up, we'll hear from a Knight of the Realm, Sir Dave Brailsford, who is principal at Team Sky and obviously something of a performance. Guru uh, will be talking continual improvement uh, with Sir Dave. Uh, He'll explain the fine line between winning and losing, good and great, Uh, and he'll touch on change, what it takes to affect change. Change doesn't talk, he says, it acts. Um, And he did that talking rather than acting. Uh, He'll also talk about the third chapter of Team Sky where does it go from here, and what does a chapter mindset? bring you. Next up we'll hear from Stuart Goldsmith um, who is a stand-up comedian and host of the Comedians Comedian podcast uh, which analyzes how and why comedians do what they do. Um, Stuart will be talking about uh, solutions to doubt, overcoming imposter syndrome uh, and giving yourself permission to fail he'll also touch on getting into flow and the concept of cherishing nerves um, after uh, Stuart we'll hear from Dr Kevin Dutton talking about cherishing nerves Dr Kevin Dutton is a research psychologist at the University of Oxford and he has a specialism in um, psychopathy uh, and will be talking about psychopathic traits and the crossover with elite athletes. And then finally, towards the end of the podcast, is the latest installment of uh, an interview series with Dr. Dara Harris uh, from Washington University School of Medicine. Dara is a communication expert and a um, stalwart moderator for us um, at Leaders. Um, And she'll be talking about cohesion, teamwork, and emotional intelligence. Enjoy. Dave Browsford, live well recorded at the Leaders Sport Performance Summit here in London. You've been on stage earlier today, talking about perpetual motion, almost mm-hmm. keeping things going, moving yeah. things forward. Um, talk us through the uh, the stripe on the jersey analogy.
1: Oh well, yeah, yeah. So uh, what I tried to demonstrate was, um, obviously, for people who are listening can't be able to see this, but um, the one thing that uh, we decided when we first started the team is that we wanted to try and somehow. Get everybody's uh, you know collective input into what are we going to stand for and of course as a new team that's quite a difficult thing to do um but we came up with um with a few phrases which kind of described the line and the line being you know the the, the fine line between winning and losing um, good and great etc uh, etc et and that became our mantra as it were and of course that's why we had a blue line down the back of the jersey and if you just put a horizontal blue line or a line down down a page and then all of our jerseys can fit year on year. So every single journey, uh, jersey we've had um, has mm-hmm. this line down the back which is obviously a, uh, meant to represent continuity and give us an anchor, if you like. Looks nice on the wall as well. Looks nice it? on the wall, looks nice on the wall. But, um, you know, there's certain things in change where you've got to decide what are the fundamentals that you, you believe in, your fundamental values. And, and um, on the other hand, you know, you've got to, you've got to keep on... Evolving and being brave enough to change and um, and I guess I was trying to make the point that The challenge with that of course is that if you want to improve Then you have to have change mm-hmm. you have to change in order to improve However, we also know that all change doesn't lead to improvement mm-hmm. um, So panic kind of like is a bit of a, a mm-hmm. conundrum really um, so We then know also that change um, it doesn't talk it doesn't plan necessarily it acts And that's probably the the single biggest thing that I I would say over the years I've been involved, that you have to have change, you have to be clever and smart about the change, but you have to consistently act. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference quite often between teams who perform well and, and maybe teams who could perform better. Something I noticed
0: in your session, you, you, you talked about the planning process being really where the gold is and, mm. and getting as much input as you can. You, know, you, mm. you talked about the requirement that you have mm. for everyone in your team mm. to at least have an opinion. It doesn't matter if mm. that opinion is you that's know, right. not yeah. good. Yeah, it's expected, um, yeah. It's expected of them and you know, going through this process, hopefully you arrive at some sort of consensus where you can ultimately yeah. decide if that's the route forward. But then on the other hand, you talk about this sort of right action, action mm-hmm. stations, mm-hmm. let's not just talk, mm. let's act. Where is the balance then for you between this, what sounds like quite an exhaustive mm. process of collecting all this, uh, well, all these opinions mm-hmm. and, and, and
1: then just launching into something? It is exhaustive at times and I think there's a different, you know, you go through different cycles like everything else and we're in our off season at the minute, we just finished the season and we started planning towards next season. Um, and as, as part of that process, I think it is very much uh, a, a challenge where we do get, it's quite interactive, you know, we get, we, get, we get cards, we get pictures, we draw diagrams, we get people to get up and think what to put teams together and it's quite, you know, you just generate conversations about planning and it's that planning process and looking at things and looking at different ideas, that is where the gold dust is like that, you know, for me, that's what aligns people, that's how you get people on the same page, that's where you get people to hear different concepts and different perspectives. And then you consolidate, hopefully, through a collective opinion. Um, and if you can't, then some of these to arbitrate, obviously. But you try and get the collective opinion into a plan, which everybody believes in, and, and certainly the riders have to have belief in their own plan. And you have got to try and marry up that, um, you know, what the each the, rider's individual uh, dreams and goals are, and what they're really, really motivated to do. With what the team would like to achieve, and then try and connect that into a, a race and training program with opportunities for everybody, and, and that's not easy. That that's, that is a difficult sort of jigsaw puzzle to to work out. But that 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 it's not necessarily the you know we come up to a certain point in time where we'll have a race strategy and a performance strategy for next year, and we'll commit that into paper. Haven't, haven't said that uh, one race, two races, three races. I mean the first race last year. Um, oh, Andrew got appendicitis and was at the race. We had to fly somebody else out to Australia, well, and it all went out. Bounce, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, we know that's going to happen. But it's not the it's not the issue. So, so the actual final concrete piece of paper, to plan, uh, it's great to have, but it's not the it's not the uh, be all and end all. The, 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 the important part, I think, is in the briefings, in the planning sessions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And likewise, post once we get into the sea. So there's a broader planning you know, of the next season, what do we do to win, etc, etc, what races do we do, how we're we going to do it, and, and how to keep moving forward, but then you actually get into the execution of it, and I think then much on a much smaller basis we do make the effort to sit as a, as a team every night after every single day of racing, we do make the effort to, to review and talk and try and get everybody's opinion. And at times it's the last thing on earth that you want to do, you know, it's late at night, we've travelled, you're, right, you're right quite late at the hotel, but we still have a little performance meeting, we hear what everybody's got to say, but we split it up so some of the guys, we, we try and get the riders feedback, sometimes they can't all be there together, we try and collect it all, and we do sit and review, mm-hmm. and um, and I think that element of it, just get everybody everybody aligned again, going into the next day mm-hmm. and, and i think that that is important you
0: talked about um the different chapters of the team and the kind of philosophy mm. behind the team i suppose and i guess mm-hmm. team sky's now into its eighth or not, it 2010 you yeah 2010 10 was our first year yeah um so eight years in um you've been through, I think you're, you probably say you're in the second chapter right now, first That's chapter, right. getting, yeah, yeah, getting would, people yeah. out on yeah. you know, the philosophy behind the team, yeah. getting people out on the roads. Yeah. Um, second chapter, more about performance, sort of inculcating a high-performance environment. Yeah. Yeah. Third chapter, which you're working mm-hmm. on, writing, penning the chapter now, mm-hmm. more about sort of
1: replicating that model. Yeah I, th- that. yeah, I think the first one is very much about performance, You know, trying to mm. figure out how to, how to win and win. Second one is about uh, continuous kind of performance, as it were, but also then start to understand uh, some of the, you know, what does what, it take to win and start to really articulate that a little bit. And then the third chapter, hopefully, will be having got that and, and, and embedded that, also being able to look at how that then applies elsewhere or, or we get some clarity, if, if you like, about about those processes. And I think in the past I've been guilty of trying to do it all at once. Mm-hmm and um, I got kind of weighted down, bogged down with it already, so I decided, we I mean, looked at it and thought that this chapter approach was a bit more, it gave us a better cadence to what we're trying to achieve, if you like, and makes it seem a lot more doable. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's where we're at, and it's, um, it feels good, actually. So we've lightened the load, and, um, and it feels like we can actually, it's achievable, it's doable, and it feels exciting mm-hmm. rather than a burden, mm-hmm. example, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And,
0: and you said, I don't know whether this is public, if it's not, I'll edit this bit mm-hmm. out, but you're
1: looking at the strategy taking the team up to 2024. Is that? Yeah, we're kind of looking at yeah. a, you know a, a long term what does the team in 2024 look like? Mm-hmm. What, would, what would it, um, you know, how would it function? What would it do? And therefore, work back from that to make sure whatever we're doing now is kind of. You know, It's got one eye on, on delivering next year and knowing what we're doing and, and, and making sure that happens. But equally, you've got to have a guiding light. Mm-hmm. You've got to be working towards something, you know, it's just not a season to season existence. And I think without that sort of working back from something where you can see, a, you know, let's say the vehicle technology is changing a lot. So what you can do with vehicles and the size of vehicles and how quickly you can, you know, what you can do with vehicles on the road in a bit of a moving circus like we are, it's incredible now and how is that going to impact on the sport? Is there some competitive advantage in that? Can we get better faster by looking at all of those kind of things? But if we did invest in, in vehicle technology then we need to make sure that it can be part of a mm. much bigger fleet that still works in, in the future rather than just a year on year and let's buy this, let's mm. buy that, let's do this, let's do that. So that's the type of thinking really and it's, um, yeah, it's good
0: fun. You know when you come up with innovations and there are a few that the team has come up with and um, they've been outruled pretty quickly mm. because um, they've been deemed to be an unfair yeah. advantage. Obviously, you're looking for an unfair advantage, you're looking for a competitive mm. advantage. Yeah. Definitionally, that is, other people mm. don't have it. Mm. But the famous mm. one was, of course, um, Richie Port's, uh, you know, moving yeah. bed, uh, which, yeah. which you managed to have for two or three days, was it, <laughs> yeah, before yeah, that was shut down? Obviously, I guess that's, that peeves you somewhat because you've invested time and money in this process. And yeah. Do you work with organisers before you bring in something like that?
1: Or? Well, I think that's, um, you know, and all these things, you've got to look at yourself first, haven't you? And I think maybe in hindsight, um, I should have approached that. We could have approached that potentially in a different way and, mm. and, and been a bit more open and collaborative about it. And um, it didn't seem to me at the time that it'd be that big a deal. Mm. Um, Nothing but, it, but, but go ahead. But, but, yeah. it, but it was uh, perceived as a big deal, that's for sure. So. Um, <laughs> you know maybe with hindsight I think we should uh, we should make sure that you know fundamentally what we're looking at is um, is the, the performance of the athletes and the athletes health welfare recovery etc mm. and um, it just seems such a logical thing to do and I think some people will go oh well you know not every team can afford to do that you can't you know quite a lot at the minute you know people talk about budgets and and you know the size of budgets etc etc and, and salary caps and reducing budgets and I think well Maybe there's two ways of looking at it. One is that you can dumb everything down to the lowest level Mm. and say, "Okay, well, let's all go down to the third division so we we can all be okay." Or maybe we can be more collaborative and see see whether we can invest in ways that's going to attract more sponsorship into the sport, bigger budget teams into the sport, and grow the sport in its entirety. And I think that's certainly my way of thinking. Mm. But um, I can see... You know, some people are, 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 you know, are challenged by that, but I'd like to think that we're doing it for the good of the sport.
0: Would you welcome a sort of more US-style approach where there's a much more powerful, centralised body and there's much more sharing amongst the teams? Because, you know, yeah, sure, they, yes. they share revenue, they share ideas. Yeah,
1: well, I think, I think it's, it's, um, it's one of the few remaining sports which maybe hasn't made that transition from a very... Um, you know, it's, 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 it's built on years and years of history and tweaks to the sport as it were and it hasn't had that moment of change where most of the sports are professionalized or modernized or they've, they've had a you know quite a big step change and it seems to me that we've got the the, the romanticism of, of of the sport of cycling which we'd never want to lose you know you've got the history of how many times Paris-Roubaix has been won and, and you look back and it's, it's it, you know when you win it it's, it's, you're not just winning a race in isolation it's, it's part of something and it's that means something to everybody and it's part of the romantic and, and enjoyment side of, of the sport but equally I do think there's um, structurally there's an opportunity of moving the sport forward to get as everybody knows a better narrative so people understand it a little bit more make it more appealing from a broadcast perspective without losing that kind of romantic side so I think that's, that's, um, that will happen and I think it will take not only collaboration well, the best changes happen through collaboration. It's not going to happen through collaboration of teams only, organisers only, or the UCI. Mm. It needs a proper collaborative approach and a, a, and a proper vision for the sport, and I don't think we have that. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we're working back from where where's the sport need to be in 2024? Or, you know, why we, you know, there's talk of reducing the, the team sizes at the moment from, you know, we've gone from nine to eight, and now let talk about seven, eight to six. six yeah. so, okay, not an issue, but tell me how what does that intervention do in order to move us towards your goal for the sport in, or vision for the sport in 2024? You know, it's a tactical move. Mm-hmm. Where's the evidence? Where's the, where's the mm-hmm. you know, where's the, where, how do you know you're not going to get some kind of unintended consequence from that? As they are doing with reducing from nine to eight. All, all that's happened is the pro teams have reduced their rider rosters from 28, 29 to 24. Employing fewer people. It few yeah. might be safer, apparently. Mm. You know, but um, but uh, yeah, I think it's, it needs a proper, we need a proper professionally developed uh, vision for the sport, which mm. we can then all work towards. Final question. Um, I'm
0: interested in, you know, as these uh, Grand Tour organizers look um, more mm. ambitiously, I suppose, look further afield for their sort of mm. uh, Grand Depart and Grande Contenso yeah. and all of that. Yeah. Um, you know, the Giro, the especially RCS, are mm. particularly bold. Mm. Um, they. And talk about Washington and Japan before mm. next year. They are going to Jerusalem, you mm. guys going out to, for, yeah. the, for the opening in Jerusalem. Is that potentially, when there is a massive transfer like that, is that an area that you will work hard on, sort of maybe gaining performance edge there?
1: Well, it's definitely a challenge, isn't mm. it? You know, I think it's um, when you think about a straightforward performance from a single base and how, how, what would you do to optimize performance, and then you layer in the, the challenges of travel and. Time zones, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Mm-hmm. and then uh, obviously there are opportunities to minimise the impact on that. And I think, to be fair, I think what we should be doing is collectively thinking about how do we minimise the impact on all riders, mm. not just our riders. Because I think if we're going to go and race and have that that type of the magnitude of transfer that we're going to have, then then we should be thinking more about looking after the staff and the riders, um, particularly the riders, obviously. Mm-hmm. But you, you've got to think about the guys who are driving that the staff who are travelling and the challenge they took You know the fatigue levels that are built up amongst the staff and the dangers of that. You know it's yeah. all it's complicated stuff. So I potentially think should, very
0: wasteful, I guess. Where you start yeah, having yeah. two two squads, you know, two support squads. Yeah, one, one yeah, out there, yeah, one. yeah,
1: yeah, 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 There's a cost to it. On the other hand, I'm all for it personally. I mm. think um, you know it's, it's 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 a change. It's a challenge. It's something new. I think if we don't try, then we'll, we'll never ever know. So I think uh, we've all got to go and give it our best shot, but what we should do is collectively try and make sure that we uh, make it work as efficiently as possible for everybody. Um, you know, there are certain areas where you think, actually, this is good for the sport, and then there's the competitive advantage between teams, and I think this is probably a good for the sport mm-hmm. issue that, uh, that we have to manage those kind of different departs from different parts of the country, yeah. our, the country, sorry, the world. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Dave Bradsford. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Stuart Goldsmith, you've just been on stage downstairs at the Leaders Sport Performance Summit yes, talking I yes. about peak performance in comedy what is it how do you get there what does it all mean what's your initial reaction to uh, how the talk went you're literally 10 minutes having come off stage
2: yes um, I, what's my reaction to it i'm i'm really like, bits of it were really excellent mm-hmm. and i think they listened to me most of all when they were laughing and of course that's right it's one of those things where i've never done anything like this before i think i'm the right guy for the job because i've got this background in interviewing comedians and analysing comedians as well as being a comedian myself. But the learning how to frame the message such that a room full of not just non-comedians, but sports people, people who, that's completely anathema to me. I'm, I'm not, I don't watch any sport, I don't play any sport. <laughs> so, you know, I'm sure there would be famous people in the room I would be completely oblivious to. So they, are, they weren't by any means a hostile audience, but they were a profoundly neutral audience yeah. for what I'm used to, to, yeah. to doing. And um, I found that when I made them laugh, they really uh, got into it. But equally, I think that um, I I think I had interesting things to say. And it's sort of up to them. I'm aware that in this environment, I'm a real curveball. Like, it's all very well having even like a cellist here or a British army guy here. But a comedian, I think if they listened out for it, there's a lot of things I said about giving yourself permission to fail, about being powerful and vulnerable at the same time, about overcoming imposter syndrome, about trying to find solutions to doubt. All of those kind of things I think are totally valid, and I think, um, and, and I think they're very transferable to lots of other realms of life, be it sport or Mm -hmm. brain surgery or
0: whatever else. I'm gonna stick up for the conference production team now, Stuart, and say that it's absolutely justified that you're here. Uh, Comedians are performers, after all, you know, and there is, I think, a very clear parallel between individual sports performers, certainly. So if you go out there as a tennis player, for example, and you are absolutely kind of riven with doubt and like suddenly imposter syndrome, all of that sort of stuff, imagine there are very similar processes that you sort of have to work through in your head as you might do as a comedian. Um, you came up with a, 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 a snazzy little acronym, I think, for the, the, four, <laughs> the four key ingredients that go into uh, a sort of p- said, comic performance. I said
2: it's, uh, it's about creativity, identity, flow and timing. Yeah. And the acronym is KIFT, which I think, <laughs> I yeah. think which is a deliberately bad KIFT, acronym yeah. I think would have got more of a laugh if I'd had some PowerPoint with me.
0: I think if you sort of, like, sort of teed that up with a fake South African accent, maybe, <laughs> and, uh, and then switched it around so it was, so it was F-I-C-T... Yes. Maybe you would have got something out of that.
2: I d- I'm, I'll be honest, I did consider it, yeah. um,
0: but uh, I actually wanted to talk about those things in a different order. Yeah, yeah, <laughs>
2: I was slightly beholden to the, the way in which I gradually yeah. sort of, I feel, I feel like I needed to sort of lead them by the hand through what I'm talking about. But it, yeah, FICT would also be very yeah,
0: good. Yeah. Um, so the, the F in that uh, acronym, FLOW, which mm-hmm. is something that I think uh, any kind of performer, any, any athlete, anyone really who's doing a job, it uh, should sort of attain to, and it's a kind of an experience that uh, where you almost think that everything is automatic, mm-hmm. and you know, it's, it is. It is what it says it is. It's flow. I think it's a psych, it's a psychology idea, isn't it? I can't remember the name of the author who came up with I it. I don't remember that, either. I'm afraid.
2: What what a treat to have come up yeah. with something so successful that no one can remember. Yeah, who no came up remember it. I mean, yeah.
0: <laughs> but anyway, so the the, the kind of. The concept of getting into flow, or there are some rituals that you can adopt, some processes that you can put in place, some preparation in order to get to the best point where you experience flow. Yes. But I guess there is no fail-safe method for reaching that state.
2: I, I, yeah, I agree. And I've certainly done gigs where I didn't feel I flowed at all. Mm-hmm. And I've done gigs where I started flowing halfway through and then stopped. And I've done gigs where the whole thing, almost the whole thing, was just this beautiful, ecstatic, Mm -hmm. feeling of and i I think i'm i think i'm getting better at generating that at realizing sort of discovering what i personally need to do to get there because i think flow is a very personal experience Mm -hmm. um and i think uh it's important to try and find it it's important to i think the main thing in getting there is is getting out from under your own feet Mm -hmm. because certainly with my industry as i said in in my presentation if you can be as funny on stage as you are with your friends in the pub, if you can be as funny when, when you're when you're with your mates in the pub, you're not thinking oh, I'm going to say something good here. Well, maybe you are, <laughs> you know, but what you're doing is reacting. You're listening. You're reacting. You're leading and following at the same time. All mm. of those kind of things, and um, and really just trying to get yourself into feeling that relaxed and that comfortable and that much like you're stepping into a warm bath mm-hmm. um, when you're on stage in front of thousands of people. Maybe mm-hmm. I, I think that's. That's what we're all going
0: for. You talked, I uh, there's an interesting point there and certainly pertains to um, sports people, this idea of rituals and superstitions and totems that you might- uh, Oh good, I the, didn't know. Do sports yeah. people do that as well? Oh, yeah, I kind yeah, of I'm guess sure. they It's they like do, putting yeah. one shin pad on before the sure, other one sure, sure, and doing sure, sure, all this sure. sort of stuff. And um, you know, coming onto the pitch and touching the ground and saluting several different gods and all of that sort of stuff. You sort of say, right, there, of course there's superstition and ritual in that, but your point was it's mainly a kind of hindsight thing, so that you can, if you don't achieve a state of flow or don't perform well, you can look back and just eliminate those as a potential regret. Thank almost. you,
2: yes. And that's an original thought that I'm quite proud of. No, no, I, no I agree. I, I, think, I, I, think yeah, I think that's why we do yeah. it, because you just don't want... A, a big thing that will trip you up is thinking, oh, Christ, I should have done that. Yeah, You know, I, I should have had a pen. My one is I always have to have a pen in my pocket yeah. and no money. Yeah. The amount of times when I come off after a gig and I've just found a pound in yeah. my back pocket and thought, oh, for God's sake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it's, it's about giving, it's about taking away the obstacles in between you and a state mm-hmm. of
0: flow. Something else I thought was very interesting in uh, the presentation was when you were talking about, um, so there needs to be an element of risk, you need to, you're talking about cherishing nerves and um, processing them as excitement somehow, tricking your brain into thinking that you're not nervous, you're in fact excited. Um, but this idea of you, you can't really practice comedy without the audience a performance in comedy yeah by it's you know it necessarily needs an audience and the audience is the instrument that you play yes um do you think there's something in there you know sort of trying to relate it to a a sporting audience as well you are communicating a set of ideas with a crowd Mm -hmm. you want them to do something at the end hopefully which is which is laugh Mm -hmm. i think there's maybe a link to um, coaches trying to get across ideas maybe and I mean do you are you with me on that
2: yes I think so mm-hmm. yes um I think you uh, you've got to absolutely a coach will have to communicate their, their ideas and you know I suppose what coaches are all looking for is having is being some version of that um You know if you watch band of brothers damian lewis that Mm. guy just go he's he's captain material because Mm -hmm. they just will crawl over broken glass for him Mm -hmm. how do we achieve that maybe in a leadership where you want people to you want people to just accept you as an authority and you want to make them feel good about doing that and you want to make mm-hmm. them feel proud to be working as part of a team and all those kind of things. So that's definitely a message that you're trying to get. Through. But in terms
0: of understanding your audience and, you know, this idea of playing your audience, making, getting them yes. on the side, getting them exactly where you want them, understanding what they find funny in this instance and don't find funny and making sure you're pressing the right buttons. What methods do you have for picking up on those signals, I guess, immediately? And you, you were talking about maybe... If you were going to do this talk again, you might do it slightly different and yes. kind of warm up the audience a little yes, bit. Yes, definitely. Get, you know.
2: yeah, definitely. Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm very adept at, uh, at doing those things, and it's it's interesting. I will, as I'm uh, uh, as I'm travelling later today, I will ruefully think about why I didn't employ some of those strategies. I do. Um, i've done a lot of tv warm-up in my time at the moment i do the i'm a regular studio warm-up for the graham norton show so Mm -hmm. that's 600 people who are all you know you need to get them from cold to absolutely going nuts uh, in about 12 minutes Mm. and um i've got a lot of strategies for that and i think a lot of them are to do with fewer of them are to do with having specific jokes lots of Lots of MCs, compares, hosts, warm-up men, people like that, will have a specific routine. I try to have as little a routine as possible, because what I want them to get excited about is me... I'm just winging the explanation. Of it. I've never talked no, about this it's before. fine. I, have. Um, I, I think what I want them to get excited about is the fact that anything can happen. And so if I talk to someone, I want to connect people to each other. I want to go, this guy's doing that. Let's try and hook him up <laughs> with this person who's uh, doing something similar and um and so you try to you try to turn a group of individuals into a cohesive unit. You try to get them doing things all at the same time. I mean, I think that's one of the origins of applause. It's one of the one of the reasons why applause is so mimetically successful. Is that you say, let's have a big hand for that previous act. Let's have you know, give yourselves a round of applause. It's all about getting people to do things in step. Mm-hmm. So cheer for this. Cheer if you're that. Identify who the people in the room is. Um, introduce the people in the room to the other people in the room. Who here is from London? Who here is from somewhere exotic? And everyone looks around and sees everybody. And go, oh right, this is who we are. Mm-hmm try to give them an identity Mm -hmm. this is all good stuff that i've never said before yeah you try you try and you try and bond them into um into being a group rather than just a bunch of Mm -hmm. individuals and that's that's stuff i've been sort of doing since i was about 16 (laughs) without really thinking about it
0: so in sporting circles um people at conferences like this um talk quite a lot about um methods for coaching and communication and really what you want to be doing is moving away from kind of a didactic approach where you're telling you know i'm the boss do this do that you want to get this crowd of players to basically believe that they've come up with the idea themselves oh yeah so you have to find sort of methods of communication so that they believe that the idea that you've had, in fact, is the, the idea that yes. they've had. And I think the idea of getting people engaged like that and kind of yes. very where you farm, there from there, well, it's a very similar thing. I
2: yes, think. it is, and it's already making me think, oh, I could, I could retcon some of this, I could work backwards from some leadership things and apply them to mm-hmm. audiences. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? But absolutely, I think some of it I'm doing instinctively and some mm-hmm. of it I think, oh, that is a good point. I've often thought that as a, a compare, a host slash up, you know, not the kind of soloist, but the, mm-hmm. the sort of the preparatory role, Yeah. Preparatory role. Um, I've often thought that that person is like the music in a film. If people notice you, you've almost done something wrong. Mm-hmm. Like the thing has to work anyway. It's not mm-hmm. such a thankless task. People only notice if you cock it up. Mm-hmm. You, you need to get everything cooking in such a way that you sort of invisibly melt away into the distance, That's in a similar but different way, that's what I try and do with my Comedian to Comedian podcast. I try not to, so many comedy based podcasts are people riffing with each other. I try to ask intelligent, provocative questions and then just sort of melt away into the Mm -hmm. background. I feel like it's a good one if I didn't need to say anything. And the model I always use is um, Michael Parkinson's interview with George Michael Uh after he got hammered and crashed his car. he walks on and Parkinson just goes, George, what happened?
0: Yeah. And that's the interview you know, Batman, yeah, that's yeah, almost yeah.
2: all he says. And and that's that's what I'm going for. So I think um, there are definitely parallels between mm. the
0: two. Talking about sort of background music in a film and the MC the idea of MCing and kind of gluing everything together and not being noticed, of course you've got your star MCs, you know, your likes of John Williams and Hans Zimmer. Mm-hmm. You know, you go along to the film because these guys are gluing it all together with their music. Yes. Daniel Kitson, for example, he's an MC and yeah. a half, isn't he? Absolutely. That's a strand of thought that's going nowhere.
2: No, no, no. I, I think it is, it's It's valid, absolutely. I think um, sometimes when you're, and I'm not speaking about Daniel specifically, but um, or at all, but sometimes it's detrimental to the gig if the MC wants to nick the gig. You sure. refer to it as nicking the gig because mm-hmm. really the MC is there. But it's all, it's all a matter of opinion and there are, no, you can write, there's probably only 12 books written about it and all of them are by people who have just individuals. Mm-hmm. So there's no hard and fast rule. I would think the majority of comedians, what they want is for the MC to set things up for them to do well, for mm-hmm. the comedian themselves to do well. And I think some MCs are so brilliant that when you bring the acts on it's almost a disappointment. Mm-hmm. And I will only talk for myself but I once did... Um, I once did TV warm-up for quite a bad star vehicle sketch show. And at one point I said, oh, here we go. You know, we were maybe two hours in. I had a great relationship with the audience, but the show itself was arguably failing. Mm. And I said, oh, right, here we go. I was on stage. I said, right, we're going back in. And there was an audible... And I think part of me thinks, well, I'm better than that guy. And part of me thinks, I've not done my job quite right, really, depending on your interpretation of the job. I think when it comes to the music in a film... I, I, I didn't know, I mean I noticed the music in Interstellar, an mm-hmm. incredible composition of Hans Zimmer but I didn't think the name Hans Zimmer to myself. Mm. I thought, oh god this is an incredible ecstatic moment mm-hmm. and then afterwards you go, who was that? It was Hans Zimmer, great, let's download it, it. let's listen yeah, to it, let's yeah, listen yeah. to it while driving far too fast on the motorway. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, sure. Um, one final point that I want to bring up because we are 13 minutes and 50 seconds on the clock that's long. Um, imposter syndrome and nerves, and, and the feeling that you get sort of before you go on stage, and even it can, it can strike you halfway through a gig. I thought you had an interesting little process for, for yes. dealing with that. Could you talk yes, about absolutely. that? Yes, absolutely.
2: And I don't know where I got it from, but um, uh, the, the process as it was relayed to me is that you first step is to notice yourself thinking, I'm an imposter, I don't belong here then you congratulate yourself for noticing it. So you go, oh, I'm doing it again. Hey, well done me, I spotted it. Then smile, actually physically smile on your own in a room. Just smile at yourself, it puts you in a good mood. Oh, I did it again, well done me. And then if all else fails, if that doesn't sort of reset you, you simply have to remember your values. And in the case of comedy, as I'm sure it's similar in sport, I'm doing this job because I love the job, because I believe in the sort of intangible rightness and meaningfulness of making people laugh. To me, that's one of the most meaningful things in the world. That's why I do this rather than anything else, because I love laughing and I love making people laugh. and I love laughing with people and I love it when people make me laugh. So even if I'm not the best guy to go out and close this particular gig in this particular environment, maybe someone else would do better here, but I'm not an imposter. I'm not a charlatan. I care, I want to do this, I want it to work for everyone, so I have a right to be here.
0: Mm -hmm. Kind of like a preacher, almost, having a kind of unwavering faith in the message, even if it's not necessarily striking home at the time.
2: It probably is similar. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, I'm trying not to say anything rude about religion. No, that's fine. I'm sure it's a... That's why I said
0: a preacher. (laughs) (laughs) Stuart Goldsmith, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for Um, Dr Kevin Dutton, your lanyard says University of Oxford, can you give me a little bit of background of what it is you do?
3: Yeah, I'm a a research psychologist at University of Oxford, Um, so uh, obviously I do research, Um, but a lot of the work that I do now is consultancy uh, and also public communication. Uh, so, being an academic these days is um, obviously about doing research. Uh, it's also about teaching, but um, equally important is what we call public outreach. Mm-hmm. Um, so, dissemination of ideas. So, uh, I spend uh, pretty much 50 50 uh, of the time between a lab and public outreach, doing talks, mm-hmm. um, attending conferences like this one at Leaders. You disseminated a fair few
0: ideas yesterday in uh, what they're all saying was a blockbuster talk. Uh, following a power outage towards the end of the day, yes, wasn't, part of the wasn't part of the it. Wasn't part of the app, but it could well have been. I can imagine Pop on you sort of, psycho
3: killer, yeah, and it killed the power. I can
0: <laughs> sort of imagine you coming out of the the gloom, kind of with a knife, you know, psycho style. Uh, maybe maybe something for the next time. Anyway, um, you delivered a talk on um, similarities between psychopaths or psychopathic traits and high performance, and how there is a fair there can be a fair degree of crossover between. Um, high high performance athletes in this case, and seriously dangerous individuals. Could you take us through some
3: of those traits that that, where there is that crossover? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's gonna come as too much of a surprise to your listeners. Um, you know, if, you, you know if, you're, if you're high on some psychopathic characteristics, then you're, you're what we might call a bad psychopath. It's easy to bully or bullshit or, or blag your way up to the top of the ladder. But actually, I think what might well come as a surprise to your listeners is the fact that if you are good at what you do, but you have some psychopathic characteristics, actually those psychopathic characteristics will make you better at what you do. So if you think about anything, not just sport, but anything, any kind of field of endeavour, you need two things to get to the top. First of all, you need the requisite skill set necessary to do the job. But secondly, you need the right kind of personality to optimally operationalise that skill set. Now, let's go through a few examples and we'll come to sport in here. Let's say that you've got the skill set to be a top surgeon right, but do you lack the ability to, uh, I don't know, um, emotionally disengage from the person that you're operating on. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work, is mm-hmm. it? Okay. Let's say you've got the skill set to be a top lawyer, but that you lack that kind of self-confidence to be the centre of attention in the middle of a packed courtroom. Again, it ain't going to work. Imagine you've got the physiological capabilities to be a top sports person in any sport you might care to mention, but you lack... I don't know uh, the ruthlessness to to kill someone off in the final round of a world title fight if there's a gash over their head, or or the ability to you know put the final winner away on centre court or Wimbledon to claim the title. Imagine you've got uh, the physiological capabilities to be a top sports person, but you lack the coolness under pressure to ride out a stall or the sheer balls necessary to take a calculated risk when appropriate. Now. Them characteristics I've just been talking to you about, ruthlessness, fearlessness, coolness, under pressure, self-confidence, emotional detachment, they comprise five core characteristics of a psychopathic personality. Now, a lot of people might say, well, a psychopath dysfunctional. I wouldn't not in that particular context. So what I've never said and what the media often portray me as saying is that psychopaths are brilliant for society. I've never said that. What I have said is, and it's very important in elite sport and in all kinds of things like business, in politics, in the arts, that if you have certain psychopathic characteristics in the right context, in the right combination, at the right level and with the right intentions, that is when you can become successful but it's got to be in the right context and at the right level you had a a snappy little phrase yesterday for um sort of summing
0: up these characteristics and uh, i think you called it the god principle uh the guts organization determined determination is that right that's right yeah with god on your side yeah you can do anything if you um take a sporting context are you a sports fan in general i am indeed okay um psychopathic traits you know if you if you come across an individual with uh, high psychopathic traits um, do you think there are sports or certain positions within certain sports that suit those tendencies
3: better than others where's it where's it good where's it good to have a psycho on your side I would say well I would certainly say that it would be good to have someone who's I think first of all what we need to do is 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 get away from the idea that being a psychopath is an all-or-nothing black or white affair you're either a psychopath or not I think What's more useful and more accurate, especially within a sport environment, is to is to to think of psychopathy as being on a spectrum, a little bit like height or weight or intelligence, along which each of us have our place. Now, if you then think about the psychopathic characteristics that I was telling you about a little bit earlier, let's go through them. Let's say you've got. Um, You've got fearlessness, you've got ruthlessness, you've got mental toughness, you've got focus, coolness under pressure, self-confidence, emotional detachment, um, and of course, them trademark deficits in conscience and empathy that you hear so much about. If you think about them characteristics as being the dial on a studio mixing desk, as it were, a personality, that you can twiddle up and down in various combinations, you arrive at two conclusions. The first is that there is no one-size-fits-all Um, objectively correct saying at which them dials might be positioned. The second is that there exist certain jobs or professions which by their very nature are going to demand that some of those dials be turned up a little bit higher than we might be comfortable with in everyday life. Might demand what we call some precision engineered psychopathy. Now, if you look at it that way, then of course there are certain uh, situation and contexts across all sports where you might need uh, someone who's high on the psychopathic spectrum on your side. When you're in a tight situation, when the stakes are particularly high, when you're on the razor's edge, when it really comes down, when it really matters. You know, the difference in tennis, for instance, between people who win and go on to the semi-finals and the finals of your Grand Slam tournaments. It comes down, if you look at the data, often between just a few key points. You know, the difference between good and great is about winning the points that really matter. And that's when the pressure is at its highest. Anybody can perform when the pressure ain't high. Mm -hmm. But the key between going from good to great is doing it when it really, really matters. And so uh, regulating your emotion, keeping your focus absolutely on the key points when it really. Matters that's when people who are high on the psychopathic spectrum really come in at our own. You've been working in psych- psychopathy, is that what you call it? Psychopathy, yeah. Psychopathy oh,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, for, for many years, with um, you know, in reductive terms, good psychopaths <laughs> and bad psychopaths, so in high performing organizations but also in uh, prisons. Um, when uh, talking uh, specifically about managing and understanding psychopathic tendencies, obviously um, sports leaders, managers, coaches, you know, they might have in their midst some very high-performing individuals who are very difficult to manage. They might display some of these tendencies. Do you have a kind of a
3: check, a checklist of advice for for how to understand and manage those those sorts of people? Yeah, well I I mean the first thing I think to bear in mind, and it's it's not a cop-out, it sounds like a politician answering now, but yeah. everyone is very different. Sure. So, you know, uh, you know, we all have, you know, psychopathy, you know, psychopathic personality traits are just one kind of level of loads of different traits that we all have in our personality <coughs> and So that's the first thing. So everyone's very, very different. What I would say, I mean, people I mean, have different approaches to managing you know, uh, guys who are very talented but also very difficult. If you are looking at someone who is uh, high on the psychopathic spectrum, it's very uh, worth bearing in mind that you know, traditionally it was thought that psychopaths were not team players. So, you know, a psychopath is in it just for themselves, it's all about self-interest. But actually recent research has started to shed a bit of a different light on that and has looked at the fact that if you can frame someone who's psychopathic, if you can frame their success, their own personal success, within the rubric of the success of the group that they're playing with or the team that they're part of, then actually you can make them more of a team player than what you might regard as the normal team players on the side. Mm-hmm. because the success of the group is then framed within their own individual self-interest. So if I was to give one piece of advice, a bit of a desert island piece of advice to someone, yeah. I would say, listen, one of the, one of the most powerful um, ingredients of social influence of any kind is to appeal to someone's self-interest. You know, don't, don't ask, you know, what they can do for you. Ask what you can do for them. And you know, my old man had a bit of advice. You know, my old man was a market trader and he used to say to me, you know what Kev, persuasion isn't about getting people to do what they don't want to do. It's about giving them a reason to do what they do want to do. Now that works whether you've got normal people like us or whether you've got people who are high on the psychopathic spectrum, okay? So, you know, given what I've just been saying, if you've got someone who you think might be high on that spectrum, then you've got to make the success of the team appeal to their own self-interest and their own individual success. If you can do that, you're gonna get someone who more than likely is gonna work their bollocks off for you.
0: And sticking with the Desert Island Discs theme, just
3: finally, uh, what one book would you take with you uh, to your Desert Island, Kevin? Well, being an absolutely rampant narcissist, I'd take me own, wouldn't I? Yes, Um, which is? (laughs) Uh, Set up for that. Good Psychopath's guide to success, which I did co-write with a very good mate of mine, Andy McNab. Um, it's um, you don't need to be a genius to to read it. You certainly don't need to be a genius to write it. Um, it will it will condense all the all the principles I've been telling you about here. Um, in a in in we call it the seven deadly the seven deadly winds. Um, so uh, all the different psychopathic principles, all condensed in the seven deadly winds, should help you be a little bit more self confident a little bit more assertive, hopefully a bit more successful. Dr. Kevin Dutton, thank you very much. My pleasure.
0: Uh, Dr. Dara Harris, hello.
4: Hello. Back again
0: for another year and another podcast. Um,
4: this time in London.
0: We are here at the Oval Cricket Ground, home of Surrey Cricket Club. It's mm-hmm. a grimy, grim, classic autumnal London afternoon outside. It was a beautiful day yesterday. Um, i enjoying it. You're enjoying it as a whole? Yeah. I mean, really? you were in action yesterday. Now, first of all, let's rewind, okay? You come on this podcast pretty much once a year. and yes. You never really explain, I introduce you, but you never really explain what you're up to, what you're doing. Yes. Would you like to do that?
4: Absolutely. Okay. So I'm a physician and I teach at Washington University's School of Medicine. Mm -hmm. And I have a really fun job because I end up working for a program that uses actors to portray patients. Mm -hmm. And then I teach communication skills, clinical skills and teamwork in a way that we are simulating some of the really difficult conversations that a physician will eventually have to have, but we do it with actors so that they can get a lot of feedback in the beginning and learn a lot of those critical skills. So when you put that with my background in pediatrics and, and adult and child psychiatry, it ends up being a focus all on communication skills, mm-hmm. so not just the kind that can get impaired when somebody has a mental health issue or a health issue, but just understanding how people communicate Mm -hmm. um, across all these different settings, including sports, which Mm -hmm. makes it a fun place to be here. Um,
0: Mm -hmm. Let's talk about um, what you've been doing since you've been over here with us. Obviously, you're a steady hand on the tiller, Mm -hmm. um, moderating sessions. You've done um, two uh, Mm -hmm. during this Leader Sport Performance Summit. The first one was with Sir Dave Brailsford, principal of Team Sky, Mm -hmm. who more or less, it's fair to say, gave a kind of presentation, followed by some uh, brief questions from you. But I think the the more interesting one, uh, in that there was a more varied discussion, was on cohesion and collaboration.
4: Yes, it was a really fun panel. I enjoy doing these for leaders, the way that you can bring... Together, expertise across what seems like and you know ostensibly are different disciplines, but still have similar challenges. So, to speak to somebody who has worked in Formula One racing Mm -hmm. and has done you know culture change there, to someone who is a trauma surgeon and understands teamwork in that setting, um, to all the way you know Australian rules um, football, which I then have now learned about as well, right? So footy, yes, which I have been Mm -hmm. um, you know educating myself on as well. So. I think one of the pieces that you and I have touched on before, too, is that the element of cohesion Mm. that has to do with emotional intelligence Mm. is particularly interesting, I think, to both of us. Yeah,
0: I mean, we wanted to sort of develop that theme. I wanted to pick up on something that you said on uh, the panel. I think we had all these um, varying different um, descriptions of what cohesion meant to these people in these different fields. I think you nailed it when you said, "Well, basically, lo- there are lots of different definitions of cohesion, but what is not definition, you can safely say, is when there is ego and voice." Right. Yeah. And I, I think that is pretty much sums it up.
4: Right. it's that antithetical? You know, so one of the things that's fun is when I first started um, talking about teaching communication skills, of course, I got the standard line. Nope. There's a bad or a good communicator. It can't mm. be taught. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a, a damaging <laughs> Thing for a number of reasons. One, every big idea becomes behavior mm-hmm. at some point. Mm-hmm. So what you can teach is behavior, and you can teach an awareness of behavior. So, yes, there are certainly people who have had life experiences that have helped them to become good communicators. Yeah. Yay. Mm-hmm. There are one also really good people who have the inherent skill of being able to read people but haven't been given the tools for how to communicate effectively. Yeah. So those big concepts like cohesion Mm -hmm. can be broken down into something like perspective taking. Mm -hmm. So when you listen to some of the stories that they said on the panel, part of what they would do is they would come into a new environment and learn first.
0: Mm
4: -hmm. Well, that's perspective taking. Perspective taking is the key to empathy. It's that I understand your world Mm -hmm. and I can connect to it. Mm -hmm. So by setting up something simple like coming in, and learning from other people you're starting on the empathy thing Mm -hmm. and then you're starting on the cohesion thing
0: yeah sure um and and i guess the empathy thing is a a surefire um kind of uh characteristic of someone who has it is emotional intelligence empathy is emotional intelligence isn't
4: it there's an interesting thing now as we're learning more about um, people who are on the autism spectrum Mm. is that they're the ability to understand what someone else is feeling or imagine what someone else is feeling may be slightly different from the ability to read cues and Mm -hmm. take some of their perspectives so we're actually introducing some complexity that may be Mm -hmm. interesting as well but yes that the way that we think about it in social interactions is that you get me Mm -hmm. essentially would be Mm -hmm. um, that cohesion piece i think When people ask me about emotional intelligence in teams, we've gotten to the point where we're all saying, yes, it's a strength, it's good, it's an attribute of leaders, and I absolutely agree. I think one of the other interesting pieces is when you are having interactions that don't feel right or where you don't understand why you're, I think I commonly hear, not getting to them Hmm. or something like that, Hmm. it's also a place to start asking yourself some questions about that mm-hmm. so for instance we were talking about like the psychopaths mm-hmm. and, um, i think if you have high emotional intelligence no. sometimes it sounds nice to think of not <laughs> having to think about everybody's feelings all the time yeah and so you certainly have people in sports who are um you know gosh it's a lot of emotions to read constantly and a yeah. lot of very high yeah. intensity ones but even if you just start thinking about Yeah different kinds of brains. So mm-hmm. there are kinds of brains, and, and this is a simplification, but like a sensing brain that essentially feels emotions in their own body, mm-hmm. right? So this is somebody who would say, you know, if somebody else is starting mm-hmm. to cry, they have the moment of like, Ooh, this is gonna alter what I do, or mm-hmm. they can feel it in their own you know, body. Mm-hmm. And those are very cool, rapid response systems, right? they tend to change quickly, they tend to mimic people's facial expressions, you feel encouraged, you, know, you keep speaking, all of those pieces. And another really cool brain is more of the observing brain.
0: Yeah.
4: And what they tend to do is see a group of behaviors and then figure out the feeling, test if they're right, sometimes provoke, confirm, and then respond. So if you think of a sensing brain, one of the problems with that fast system is you can make causation errors. Right. You can think it's you or you can think it's something else that's in your brain, but it's not. Mm-hmm. But on the observing brain, you can put together the wrong pattern. Mm-hmm. So you can think, oh, when somebody you know, just taps their pen, that means they're you know, bored and ready to leave. And I may look at it and say, actually, it's when they're nervous. Mm-hmm. But if the only link you have is pen tapping, means bored and ready to leave, then that's how you'll respond. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you're having interactions with people and you just keep thinking this is off or why don't they hear me? And they overreact to things that you don't understand. Mm
1: -hmm.
4: Slowing it back and saying, how are they making the decision about me? Mm -hmm. And if they're doing it based on my behaviors, that may be the place to be curious. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can actually help them to ask about it, or you can say what you're feeling, mm-hmm. and then really change their ability to, you know, to interact with
0: you. As soon as I turn this tape off, mm-hmm. I am going to write up uh, what happened today, including yes. my key takeaways Ooh. from the mm-hmm. day. Now, yes. what should I write for those, Dara? I'll continue to talk for a little bit, mm-hmm. as you think.
1: Do you I have one? really
4: enjoyed. Okay. I had a couple. Yeah. Um, I really, this ends up being somewhat more personal. I, the military piece, I think, you know, knowing and seeing the personal sacrifice that is done, um, we can all have complex relationships to the policies and everything that is attached to that, but on just a simple human level to see. The incredible dedication and risk that is taken on I think is in personally inspiring, and you know with the military people that are in my life matters to me that people value and understand that risk and exposure. I also thought the military piece of you know that one little thing of using data to show safety that we talk about this all the time, but that that personal risk. Mm-hmm. That you used a map that you took technology in a way that made people yep. feel like they could do yep. that
0: using data as a, as a communication tool to persuade yes. to, yeah, to, to persuade yes. people
4: right and to assure to that yeah. right and that, that, that to say you know, to do a simulation at that level where you could actually find problems mm-hmm. instead of just sort of a minimum effort you mm-hmm. know I thought was really um, remarkable i um, For Mark Shapiro, one of the funny things everyone, like a lot of people say, is like, oh, I want to work for that guy, you know, after listening to him speak. I think that dedication to learning and the power and the sense that people who are dedicated to learning will have your back when you go through things that are difficult and when you're going through change, I think is another kind of hidden key um, to what cohesion looks like in, in practice is also it's the opposite of blame right is I'm not gonna blame you I'm gonna have your back Mm -hmm. and we're gonna figure it out So I think there are other pieces of learning culture that actually end up being a big part of cohesion as well.
0: I'm not sure I would like to work for Mark Shapiro, but only because mm. he is one of the fastest talkers in the world. <laughs> and if I was ever in a note-taking scenario...
4: Oh, you'd have to... You, just, you would adapt. You I would,
0: would I wouldn't record. adapt. I'd would get arthritis or something <laughs> like that.
4: Yeah. His fast-moving brains.
0: Yes, too fast, too fast. has yeah. 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 thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Yes.